2: Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. Later in the pod, a conversation I had on Friday with Cal Cunningham, who's running against Tom Tillis for the North Carolina Senate seat that could give the Democrats the majority and cost Mitch McConnell his job as majority leader. I like him. I like the cut of his jib. Except he's great. And Charming. I don't have this in the outline, but also news today, Steve Bullock is officially in. So yeah. Montana, also in play now.
3: Let's go. Hey, real quick, though. Shout out Chuck Schumer, who clearly made a lot of these recruits uh, get in the game. Chuck got his uh, got his men and women. We got to give Chuck some credit where credit is due. Um,
2: but first, before that, we're going to talk about the Trump administration's frighteningly incompetent response to the rapidly spreading coronavirus. And we're going to take a look at this Tuesday's showdown between the last two Democratic candidates standing, Joe Biden... And Bernie Sanders, love it. How was the show this weekend?
4: We had a great, love it or leave it. Looking at Super Tuesday and everything else that happened with Yasser Lester and Megan Gailey. it was a uh, cathartic, drunken experience. Check it out. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds it really great. Was. It's what happened. They cut the part where I lay down on the ground. I was in a, I was in a headspace. It was a strange week. Yeah, like that is <laughs> weird,
2: weird week. Uh, also, some exciting news: the first two episodes of our new sports podcast, Hall of Shame, are out today. Subscribe now and make sure you stick around for the end of this episode where you can hear a short interview Love It had with the show's hosts, Rachel Benetta and Retina Fruckbaum.
4: It's a, it's an awesome show. And if you don't believe me, just listen to how funny and smart uh, these hosts are when we uh, talk to them. It's great. I think it's going to be a hit.
2: Yes, it is. Yes, yes it, it is. is. Okay. Let's start with the latest on the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, The global pandemic has now affected more than 100,000 people and killed 3,800. Here in the U.S., we're now over 500 confirmed cases across 33 states, with 20 Americans who've died. In northern Italy, the hardest-hit place outside of China, the government has instituted a lockdown, which the leading U.S. official for infectious diseases said might have to happen in certain communities here. Probably less of a lockdown, but some social distancing. Dr. Anthony Fauci also recommended that the elderly and those with underlying health conditions avoid travel and large public gatherings. Meanwhile, global stock markets are collapsing over the economic impact of coronavirus, as well as an oil price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. Trading was halted on Wall Street this morning after the market plunged 1,800 points at the opening bell. I think right now we're around down 2,000 as we record this. Um, And how is our president handling the crisis? Well... Yesterday, he was golfing after holding a press conference at the CDC on Friday, where he said this.
1: Anybody that needs a test can have a test. They're all set. They have a out there. In addition
5: to that, they're making millions of more as we speak. But as of right now and yesterday, anybody that needs a test, that's the important thing. And the tests are all perfect. Like the letter was perfect. The transcription was perfect, right? This was not as perfect as that, but pretty good. have great experts, including our vice president who's working 24 hours a day on this stuff. Um, They would like to have the people come off. I'd rather have the people stay, but I'd go with them. I told them to make the final decision. I would rather because I like the numbers being where they are.
1: I don't need to have the numbers double because of one ship. That wasn't our fault.
2: Guys, initial reactions?
4: I think it was a
3: mistake to have Donald Trump be president during this crisis so much back padding. there's so much so much congratulating for working hard yeah there's a global pandemic it's kind of priced in you should, yeah go to the office that'd be great yeah i mean look uh, the the strange word association
4: that you know obviously tests weren't available that was a lie um they hand, still aren't for anyone who wants them right i mean they are shipping an, you know a lot of tests now but yep. there was a huge delay caused by the trump administration's incompetence uh the fact that his brain makes the word perfect come out to describe his conduct, and then he immediately goes to his perfect call, the perfect, you know, as we all know, the classic phrase, it was as perfect as my call with Ukraine, uh, which is in a sense true. They're both, you know, historic blunders and a sign of deep inherent narcissism and corruption. Uh, But uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's a dystopian uh, image, all of these uh, 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 people around Donald Trump praising him to to the to the high heavens in the hopes that he might let them say something true.
3: It's a small point, too, but he's wearing a make America great again hat during his CDC headquarters briefing, which is just probably illegal under the Hatch Act. It's wolf incredibly inappropriate and like come on, man. But I mean, there are like there's a couple of buckets of screw-ups here. There are things that his technocratic scientific health leadership team did that were mistakes that set us back weeks. And then there's clearly a series of decisions that flowed from Trump's desire to downplay this pandemic that had a cascading effect that has left us in a terrible, terrible position to deal with this virus. And you know what has been also obvious at all these press events is he cares more about the economic impact because that has clear political consequences for him. So you have to imagine that the White House is panicking right now watching the markets down 7% today, when on Friday, Larry Kudlow his ripped from the CNBC Green Room economic advisor said, now's a good time to buy the stock market dip because we have this thing contained.
2: Yeah, I think Trump saying that he didn't want uh, the Americans brought ashore from the cruise ship because he doesn't want the numbers to go up because he likes the numbers down. I think that is indicative of how he has fucked up the entire response to this crisis, which is he only views it through the prism of his own political standing and how it's going to look. And so, therefore, he continues to downplay the severity of the crisis because he's worried that – he's worried what Tommy said about – the economic implications, but also if it looks like more Americans have the virus, that looks bad because Trump told us, of course, a couple weeks ago that there were only 15 cases and it would be down to zero soon. Larry Kudlow also said that it was being contained. Kellyanne Conway said it was being contained. The administration's telling people it's it's being contained. That isn't true. I mean, there's a couple of things he's done here, right? Like there was a number of uh, really great TikToks of how the administration uh has handled this mishandled this over the last couple of weeks in politico uh dan diamond wrote one there and then in the washington post and the new york times basically the story is like he yelled at experts who told him bad news he doesn't want bad news and so the staff is now the administration officials the non-political administration officials are afraid to tell him they're bad conditioned news. they're conditioned right because he doesn't want it um he they, they said the test would be ready they weren't. They were slow on the testing. They could have uh, eliminated regulations that would have allowed private companies to do testing weeks and weeks ago. They just did it late last week. Um, so they were late there. Um, and basically, if he had talked about the severity of the crisis earlier, hospitals, other healthcare facilities could have been prepared. Um, by they could have started buying more respirators, getting more hospital beds, more staffing. They could have been prepared earlier than they have been.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, also, personnel is policy, right? And so from the very beginning of this, technocratic leadership at places like CDC have been muzzled because they've been speaking hard truths. And then on top of that, the, the presidential personnel office is being filled with Trump fans, right? right? He just brought brought back his body guy who had been fired for some reason. He's now in charge. There's a report in Politico that the latest presidential personnel office hire is a 23-year-old college senior. That's mm-hmm. how unserious they are about staffing the government with people who know what they're doing.
2: Right. They were Apparently, Trump aides were mocking Alex Azar, the Health and Human Services secretary, for being alarmist about this. Yeah, Mocking him because they're a, a too, bunch yeah. of children.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, it's they were you know trump has been furious at some of the career officials you know actual medical experts for telling the truth before getting ahead of the administration and being honest right i mean it's not just that when these people were saying it was contained it was rosy it was unknowable and not true and it's because they were worried not just they're not just thinking politically they're not only thinking about pr they're thinking about pr in incredibly narrow and foolish and short-sighted way right
2: Even, even if you wanted even if you said okay they just want to think about the political implications and the and the public opinion, all that stuff. They're still doing it wrong. Yeah, they're still
4: doing it wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, let's say Donald Trump was just, all I care about is winning. What do I need to do to win? A... A smart political person would say, you need to be honest now to create the conditions for you to demonstrate that you're doing a good job managing this over the long term because the coronavirus doesn't watch Lou Dobbs and doesn't respect Republican talking points. So if you don't get ahead of this now, everything you're doing to be rosy will make you look right. that much dumber well, in a week's time. It's
2: what you said last pod, which is it's short termism, right? Yes. It's like, I just got to get through today and tomorrow and win this news cycle. And I don't have to worry about what's happening down the road. Like right. So there was an A report. um, A government official told the Associated Press that the White House overruled health officials who wanted to recommend that elderly and physically fragile Americans be advised not to fly. So this story comes out. And of course, Fauci on uh, Meet the Press on Sunday basically gave that recommendation anyway. So the recommendation came out, but now they look like they covered it up because they did cover it up.
3: Yeah. Containment buys you time. You can stop flights to China and maybe get yourself a couple of weeks before the outbreak grows. But any public health expert could have told you for months now that this was inevitable, that there was going to be a massive global spread of this disease. And so on top of what you guys were were mentioning, I mean, when Congress first started talking about uh, some sort of a package of funds to deal with this crisis, Trump literally made fun of Chuck Schumer at a press conference for uh, proposing $8 billion when what he wanted was basically $2.5 billion, half of it stolen from other programs. So from the very beginning, they've minimized this in very real ways that have had a cascading effect. And now here we are.
2: And to, and to tell you how bad that is, they passed the $8 billion. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, found out that New York was only getting $35 million of the $8 billion, And now he's pissed at even the bigger package that Democrats in Congress agree to, because New York now has a crisis on their hands and they don't have enough money um, to handle it.
4: And by the way, the debate about two billion versus eight billion is going to seem like nothing yeah. when, due to the mismanagement of the Trump administration, we start talking about a massive stimulus to help the economy when people can't go to work, when kids can't go to school, and parents have to stay home, uh, when 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 people have to cancel their shifts because they can't do food service work and they don't have any money to get them through the the periods of time when they can't go to work or they're desperately trying to figure out if they can work when they're sick, all of the kind Never
2: of- Never mind all the associated healthcare costs.
3: All the associated healthcare costs. Tri- literally trillions and trillions of dollars in value of the stock market have just been wiped out. Yeah. And, and look, we don't know how
4: bad this is going to be, but you know, I, in that same press conference uh, where Trump made fun of Chuck Schumer for wanting the money, Azar, uh, after, you know- <laughs> getting down on his knees and and kissing Trump's feet and, you know, telling the dear leader how how marvelous he was doing, said, thanks to President Trump, his actions have bought us time. Because even then, they knew that what was coming was going to be really serious. And why is buying time so important? Well, we don't know how big the peak of this is going to be. But if you can spread it out over time, maybe our healthcare system can have the capacity to deal with it. And because. Because we have no idea how far this has spread, because there was so little testing, we do not know just how bad a position the administration has put us in, and that people who are sick may not be able to get the care they need in the emergency that may be coming.
3: Hey, love it. you practiced uh, social distancing in high school. Can you describe that to listeners? What was that?
4: Yeah. Well, basically, what happens <laughs> is uh, a really cool girl waves at you, and you wave back, and she says, I'm waving at someone behind you, and then repeat that every day for years.
2: Some social distancing can be spent uh, in a locker or... Or a recycling <laughs> Or bin. a recycling bin. Or,
4: uh, <laughs> or playing uh, uh, Mario 64 during your prom. Listen, nothing so, wrong with that.
2: Because- so there's another danger here, which is that because uh, Trump is downplaying the crisis, his propaganda outlets are doing the same thing. Laura Ingram said Democrats are using the pandemic to smear the administration. Sean Hannity said the left is rooting for the coronavirus. And Medal of Freedom winner uh, Rush Limbaugh said the coronavirus is just like the common cold. Um, also both CNN MSNBC, and MSNBC have run clips of Trump supporters outside a Trump rally saying that coronavirus is, quote, a hoax made up by the Democrats. Now, this is in the age of Trump. I think this is something relatively new yeah. that we may now have a you know global pandemic in this crisis where, you know, a whole segment of the American population who gets their news and information from propaganda outlets just doesn't. Take the proper steps and precautions because they don't believe it to be true.
3: The Trump administration has been shitting on globalism for a long time, and there's there's a there's a healthy dose of anti-Semitism in there. There's a bunch of nationalist, you know, MAGA bullshit. But it's it's quite frustrating when you think about these challenges because it is a global world. And Republicans are willing to talk about targeting terrorist groups overseas so that they don't come here, right? We need to apply that kind of approach to the logic when you're talking about global climate change or disease mitigation like this. But for some reason, it just gets demagogued and dismissed. And then on top of that, we have these insane conspiracy theories that are not inconsequential, right? QAnon went from a thing that people scoffed at and mocked to omnipresent at Trump rallies. And it's a deeply scary theory when you really dig into the details. So I suspect these conspiracy theories are going to grow and get worse.
4: It's also, you know, again, the coronavirus doesn't listen to Rush Limbaugh uh, and Rush Limbaugh's audience, Laura Ingram's audience, Sean Hannity's audience. These are older people. These are are people whose immune systems are not receptive uh, 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 to these arguments. And, you know, Scott Gottlieb, who's a former FDA uh, commissioner, I believe, uh, gave a pretty... um, chilling interview on one of the Sunday shows. By the way, former FDA commissioner under the first two years of Trump. Yeah. And he said, basically, this is not the flu. This is far more serious than the flu. And the the inability of experts to overcome what the right wing media is trying to do inside the administration, outside of the administration is a genuinely dangerous and new aspect of how this is going to just make life worse for everybody.
2: I mean, a few examples. Matt Gates um mocked coronavirus by wearing like this big gas mask the other day Mm -hmm. and uh you know one of the first people who died in florida was in his district um cpac uh conservative political action uh committee had their conference and one of the attendees at cpac is now tested positive for coronavirus and ted cruz was there and had contact with the man and he's now self-quarantined um, for this week,
3: Paul Gosar, member of Congress, yep. a couple days ago, tweeted uh, for a moment. I thought Donald Trump created this virus in a secret lab in Wuhan. At least that's how the Democrats hysterical Dems make it sound. Remember when Obama brought in Ebola patients? Good times. Now he is self-quarantined. Yeah. So maybe we could take our job seriously. Right. Republican member. Right. Like no
2: one needs to no one needs to panic. And we should just, like, listen to experts, but we should, like, when the experts speak, don't call it a fucking hoax. And this, we should talk about how the non-Trump media is covering this, too. Uh, Last week, Trump told this complete lie that the testing delay was Obama's fault. Uh, And the New York Times headline was, quote, criticized for coronavirus response. Trump points to Obama administration. You have to get to the third paragraph. And even then it just says, quote, it was not entirely clear what he was referring to. How, how should the media cover a president who's just lying to the public during a global pandemic? Um,
4: I don't think that's the right way. Um, <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> when Donald Trump is flailing and making things up on the fly, you don't have to pretend that you just couldn't put enough researchers on the case to get what he was referring to. And, you know, one of the authors of that story, Peter Baker, famously talks about how how hard he works not to form his own opinions, to not even discuss political matters when he is in private to not vote. And uh, Peter, if your mind is so open that your brain falls out of your head and into the fucking sewer, uh, maybe there's just some utility to being a little bit critical of what you're told, given that you're the paper of the record and one of the most important places people get information about a ongoing pandemic.
3: Yeah. I mean, I just think On a normal day, just sort of uncritically repeating Trump's lies is is shitty journalism, and it's you see it all the time, especially on, on social media feeds for news outlets. Like Trump says that Obama, you know killed an innocent person. You know, it's something ridiculous yeah. and just gets repeated. And we need to fact check it in the first instance, because it doesn't matter if you have one story in the paper, that's just the crazy attack on Obama from Trump. But then the lead all is a bigger analysis about the way he lies. In this social media driven world, the Trump campaign can take the story that blames Obama and put a couple hundred thousand dollars behind it on f- Facebook and boost it to all these people. So w- when Trump is spinning like dangerous health information. I think we have an extra obligation to fact check that on the front end or not even report it. You don't have to repeat right. crazy lies. He yeah, says a I, lot of crap I realize day.
2: it's important to cover what the president says, right? Of course you have to do that, but you don't have to cover every single word, you don't have to cover every single lie. Look and look, Trump's out there this morning he was having like a, a complete breakdown on Twitter. He's tweeting how many times like this is fake news, everything's fine. Like it, it of course it is the job of the press in a time like this, in the midst of a public health crisis, to call that out, like if not, if that's not their job, I don't know what is.
4: I don't, yeah, I'd also just say too, like, well, what's the biggest story right now about about Donald Trump? Is it what the is it the, the precise? Attacks he launched today. There was one about Elizabeth Warren. There was one about Chuck Schumer. There was one about Barack Obama. There's one about the fake news. There's one about lies about the market. There's one about gas prices. It was all this morning. Uh, What's the most important thing about what Donald Trump did today? Is it the substance of what he's saying, or is it the fact of in the midst of a crisis? we have someone desperately looking for ways to blame others. To me, that seems to me to be the most important thing. And to protect himself. And to protect himself. That to me seems to be the most important thing, not in a partisan way, not in an ideological way, just the fact of what we are going through, a global pandemic, the president is flailing and looking for someone to blame. Who he's blaming Is such a second-order concern compared to having an incompetent commander-in-chief trying to treat this like a PR crisis.
2: Yeah, the most important stories over the weekend were those TikToks that the New York Times did an excellent one and the Post and the Politico about all these administration officials who were trying to do the right thing and are afraid because Donald Trump is only concerned about his own political future that he's not listening to them. That's the most important story to know.
4: I also, In the, in one of the stories, I believe it was the Times, uh, looking at the you know the mismanagement and decision-making process over the last few days, by the way, in that story mentioned in passing that one of the key voices in making the decision as to whether or not, or not to allow travel from China was Kellyanne Conway. Glad she's Ooh, on the phone. case. That's yeah, get the holster really, in there. Yeah, really good to get her, <laughs> her expert take. But also, it just included in passing... That Trump's press conference at the CDC was rambling, and one of the hard parts I think about, and I don't, I don't begrudge the way in which reporters have to do this, is the is the need to just simply impose order on what Trump says. Sometimes hides just how. Uh, lost and meandering his words have been in the past few days. And so like the imposing of a narrative on what Trump says, you know, even that Peter Baker story talking about, you know, Trump launching an attack against Obama, like his behavior has been erratic, hard to follow, uh, misleading, lies, contradicting experts who are standing right next to him. And that to me is a big part of this, too.
2: Uh, Let's talk about what Democrats should be saying and doing here. Last night, Pelosi and Schumer put out a pretty strong statement hitting Trump for considering more corporate tax breaks instead of things like paid sick leave for people who are sick or quarantined, expanded unemployment insurance, protections for healthcare workers, free testing and care for people who have the virus, more money for hospitals, etc, etc. What else do you guys think? How do you think Democrats should be handling this?
3: I mean, if there is not a way for people who work hourly jobs to survive, to pay their rent, to put food on the table, to pay for child care... While they have this virus, they are going to go to work. And we have no hope of 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 preventing the spread of this thing unless paid sick leave is on the table. So I feel like that has to be the thing that Democrats absolutely go to the mat to fight for. Not just, you know, aid to US energy producers. Because there's a whole separate problem happening right now that we haven't talked about. Over the weekend, yeah. the Saudis and the Russians got into a massive oil price war, where the Saudis basically said, fuck you to OPEC, we're going to cut prices, we're going to increase output. And what they're trying to do is so thoroughly collapse the price of oil that US energy producers just can't function anymore. So they drive them out of business. So all the fracking and all the sort of ways that the US has become energy independent recently go away. So that's happening in the background. And Trump's trying to tweet that that's that's good for the nation and that gas prices will go down. But in the long term, it's incredibly destabilizing. So what you're just seeing out, right now is is reporting that some of the latest ideas lead with aid to energy producers, support to small businesses, help the airline industry, which frankly will probably have to get bailed out because who the hell is going to fly right now, but we have to help hourly workers uh, first and foremost. Uh,
2: yeah. I mean, look, I think that no one should be rooting for a recession and obviously no one should be causing panic that is unnecessary, but in every way, that is warranted Democrats should take this up to an 11 here because you have a president who is massively mishandling a really serious public health crisis and also a president who now we could be headed into a recession and has no idea how to handle anything and is basically only thinking about everything through the lens of what's gonna get me reelected in November. And he is sitting here talking about tax breaks for uh, you know, airline industry, and for energy producers and all this other shit when Democrats should be standing up for most of the workers and people in this country who could be hurt by this, both from a healthcare perspective and from an economic perspective. And like I have just not—I mean, I think Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders should both be talking about this nonstop. I think every candidate who's dropped out and is now a surrogate should be talking about this. I think every member of Congress should go on TV. It's a competence and be argument.
3: He is incompetent. These people are incapable of running the government.
2: Yeah, and that should be
4: everyone's message over and over again. I mean, he disbanded because it was from Obama. The— uh, team that would have handled a pandemic inside the White House. Yeah, uh, He, in the midst of a period of time where there was absolutely no economic justification for it, passed a massive tax cut for the biggest corporations and the wealthiest people in this country that created a trillion dollar hole. And now, at a moment where we really may be in a crisis, where we really may need the government to step in, uh, they have already pulled a bunch of those levers, and now they're going to try to do it again, to pay another corporate tax cut instead of paid leave, instead of just help for people, tax rebate, what have you, but that their first instinct is to protect the airlines, protect the corporations instead of ordinary people, is uh, despicable. Democrats should dictate the
2: demand, what's in the stimulus. Yeah. Um, and they should, because there's going there's probably going to be a bigger package uh, debated, and Trump's gonna to try to just do the bare minimum for most people in this country and try to do whatever it takes to sort of calm the stock market. And Democrats should, de- you know, it's good that Schumer and Pelosi got out ahead of this last night, and Democrats should be demanding all of those uh, priorities in any kind of recovery stimulus, whatever you want to call it, package that comes, and not move on that.
3: Yeah. And just one thing Love said. So after the Ebola crisis in 2014, Ron Klein, who coordinated that response, told President Obama, hey, you probably shouldn't hire someone like me every time there's a pandemic, right? We should have a full-time person who works on this who prepares. Because a pandemic response is a global effort that requires the Entire government and requires dealing with foreign governments, etc. So they created a person on the National Security Council and a team there that handled pandemic response. Trump got rid of them. Right on top of that, there have been there's been budget after budget after budget of CDC cuts. So there's the near term fuck ups, and then there's mu- this much more probably impactful, long-term gutting of public health infrastructure, gutting of a program that was designed to identify diseases that jump from animals to humans that was set up during the Bush administration. They got rid of that. That one feels a little on the nose to me. Yeah, Maybe a bad idea in hindsight.
4: Not to mention, by the way, desperately trying to throw people off their health care by trying to get rid of the Affordable Care Act in the midst of a moment where what we need is for everyone to be able to access care. Which, again... Democrats, you know, are in a position to be talking about
2: (laughs) this is the this should be the whole story and everyone should get on TV and be talking about it. Absolutely. You know, and I think talking about it more than we're about to talk about sort of the differences between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, which, you know, of course, we have to talk about we're in the middle of this primary. But I do think, you know. If you're a Democrat out there, if you're on Twitter, you're going on TV, Like the, you should be talking about what is a massive public health and, and growing economic crisis and in it this goes country to, and Trump's mismanagement of it.
4: And it does go to to a broader vision and difference between what Trump offers and Democrats offer. this put crisis aside, when people get sick and have to go to work, that is a problem all the time. All the time. It is, an, it is a problem every flu season. It is a problem every cold season. And we just ignore it. And uh, we can't.
2: All right, let's talk about the Democratic primary, which is down to just two candidates, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. The two men will compete on Tuesday in Idaho, Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota and Washington State, where 352 delegates are up for grabs. Sanders is favored in Idaho and North Dakota. Biden is favored in Mississippi and Missouri, while Washington and Michigan are competitive, though a few polls out today with huge Biden leads uh, show that might not be true anymore. Um, the former vice president has around a 90 delegate lead on Sanders, and they're still counting votes in California. Guys, what kind of wins does Bernie need to narrow
3: Joe Biden's delegate lead right now? I think he needs to win over 50 percent of all the remaining delegates right, to win. Yeah, I think it was at 55 last time. I yeah. Heard. And so that's why these these numbers today are a huge problem for Bernie Sanders. I mean, the challenge is uh, in some of the biggest states, if you win by a small margin, you don't net that many delegates. But in a state like Mississippi that has 30 delegates at stake, if Joe Biden wins that with 77 or 80% of the vote, he could net 30 delegates out of Mississippi, which puts it on par with, you know, a Texas victory or, you know, it's a couple, it's not that many delegates away from the California victory. So Biden could rack up a huge lead here.
2: I I did a little math. I played around with the delegate calculator on uh, 270 to win. So- by, Bernie could pick up about forty delegates if he wins if he wins Michigan and Washington by ten points, which would be hard. But let's give him the this is the best outcome for Bernie. Yep. He wins Michigan and Washington by ten points, and North Dakota and Idaho by forty points because they're smaller states. He's, he has a bigger lead there, right? So then he would pick up forty delegates. But then Joe Biden can also pick up forty delegates by winning Mississippi and Missouri by his current polling margin, and. So that means we would end the day with Biden still 90 delegates ahead because it would be a wash. And that's like one of the best case scenarios for Bernie. So you can start to see, and we talked about this before Super Tuesday, you can start to see why building even a modest delegate lead early in a Democratic primary with proportional uh, allocation of delegates, it becomes really hard to catch the delegate leader. And this is why we thought Bernie Sanders might come out of Super Tuesday with an insurmountable delegate lead, even if it was only 100 or 200 delegates over the next candidate.
4: Right. And that would have been a challenge for any candidate. It's even it's an even bigger challenge for Bernie Sanders when the states that follow Super Tuesday are more demographically favorable to Joe Biden.
2: I mean, it seems like. Yeah, the worst two states he's got coming uh, is Florida on the 17th, where he's polling very poorly, and then Georgia um,
3: a week later which, you know, if it votes like all the other Southern states, he's going to have trouble. In it. Yeah. I mean, for what it's worth, the the 538 model currently gives Biden an 88% chance of winning a majority of pledged delegates. Uh, that is a massive swing from where we were before Super Tuesday. There was enormous strength for Joe Biden uh, among African-American voters in a lot of these states, and then uh, a very rapid consolidation uh, for Joe Biden among late deciders. And You know, it does like it seems like the Sanders campaign is going after Biden on a whole bunch of fronts, Social Security, a bunch of previous votes. But, you know, it's unclear to me what's sticking and frankly making something stick getting people's attention in a media environment that is dominated by coronavirus seems challenging as well
2: yeah so let's talk about Bernie's strategy Uh, he ditched an event in mississippi and was focused on michigan over the weekend where he was endorsed by reverend jesse jackson Uh, he's also been running ads and giving speeches as you mentioned tommy that focused mostly on joe biden's record on social security nafta iraq lgbt rights and women's reproductive rights essentially pointing out that biden's past positions as a senator aren't in line with the mainstream of the Democratic Party today. What do you think about that strategy?
4: I think it's half of what we've been talking. We've been talking about this for a while. I mean, you know, he's launching a pretty hard, you know, uh, uh, a contrast against Joe Biden. But the other half of that is a broader message to appeal to more people than what he's appealed to so far. And I don't know that we've seen that. I also, at this point, you know, In the week before Super Tuesday, everyone was like, we are heading towards Bernie Sanders likely having a a delegate lead coming out of Super Tuesday. But there was a lot of things we couldn't foresee and things we weren't seeing. And so uh, Joe Biden uh, uh, wins South Carolina. There's this incredible consolidation and he uh, performs incredibly well, surprising uh, everybody with just how well he does on Super Tuesday. You know, we're about to have another set of votes tomorrow and in the days that follow. And it seems to me that what we are talking about is whether or not there's another big change that we're currently not seeing. That's yeah. all. And if there is, Bernie Sanders uh, can do this. If not, I don't, doesn't, the message, the direction, the strategy seems to me almost beside the point.
3: It's been very hard to get people to worry about old votes. I think it's likely that most people who are going to the polls know that Joe Biden supported the Iraq War. And to date, that hasn't really impacted their votes seemingly. You know, and I, I do think th- if you dig deep enough in someone's past, they've said things that make them seem inconsistent or uh, out of step with current times, and I think voters intuitively understand that. There's some allowance for tacking to the middle in a general election, and I think we're seeing that. I mean, people think they know Joe Biden. He was Barack Obama's vice president. They like him. They think he's nice. They know his family story. That can, I think, go a lot further, especially on voters who aren't paying attention day-to-day, hour-to-hour, than dredging up old votes. I'm not saying it's out of bounds for Bernie Sanders to do that. They absolutely should talk about policy contrast. I'm just I'm wondering about the efficacy. Yeah, I think it is completely
2: fair of Bernie Sanders to talk about Joe Biden's record, 100%. Um, On Social Security, for example, you know, he's running a clip of uh, Joe Biden in 1995 talking about a 1984 proposal that he had to freeze Social Security spending for a year. Um, And then, you know, other times in Joe Biden's career, he's talked about Uh, perhaps raising the retirement age or stopping sort of cost of living increase, slowing cost of living increases for Social Security. You know, the tricky part about that is uh, a couple things. The Biden campaign can point to, and they have, um, many, many votes over Joe Biden's long career where he has not only protected Social Security, but expanded it, even though he's talked about making these modifications that you can certainly classify as cuts. Um, And sort of what Tommy was saying You know, if Joe Biden had just been a senator for his whole life and then was running for president, it might be easier to point to all of his old Senate votes and have them stick. But there was this thing in between where he was Barack Obama's vice president for eight years and most Democratic voters, you know, saw Barack Obama as plenty liberal enough, plenty progressive enough. And Joe Biden was his vice president and agreed with him on just about every in fact on LGBT rights. Got out ahead of Barack Obama on gay marriage, you know? So I just think it's totally fair for Bernie to go down this road, but it is—I wonder how how it will be able to stick.
4: Yeah, know? I mean, I do think—I think it's actually fair on a number of levels. I actually think the the deeper critique of Joe Biden, which I, I, I think is what undergirds this, is also completely fair, which is— Joe Biden has been for a very long time a consensus Democratic politician, well within the mainstream of where the party is. And where the party has been is to the right of where the party is today, and where Bernie Sanders has always been. Bernie Sanders has been saying for a very long time we're uh, too far right on this issue on Social Security, on healthcare, on what have you, on trade. Uh, and Joe Biden has been where the party is. The issue right now is where the party is has moved to the left, in part because of the leadership of Bernie Sanders over the last four years. And so the problem. Well, and the other problem is. Joe Biden has moved with it. Yes, that's what, what I'm know? saying. Yeah, a- he is where the party consensus is. He is the consensus candidate. It's why all these people got behind him and where that consensus is kind of answers the Bernie critique. He can just say in the same way that uh, you know, Joe Biden can say to Bernie, you had these terrible gun votes and Bernie can say but now look where I'm at. Biden can say, oh, you had these, you know, Bernie can say you've had these terrible Social Security votes and Biden can say, well, look where I'm at.
2: Yeah. Now, one thing that Bernie can do and he has done, but maybe not as much, at least that I've noticed over the last week, is use those, use his positions and Biden's positions to make more of an electability case and say, look, we want someone running against Trump who has a clear case on, you know, I've supported Social Security and, and, and wanted to expand Social Security my entire career. Donald Trump wants to cut it. And it's not as clean of a case if you have Biden who has some of these votes, right? And I still think, I mean, it's a little harder to make that case, but it, you know, it's an electability case. And again, as we've seen from all the results so far, electability is on people's minds. And so whatever yeah. sort of electability case you make, and everyone can make different cases... It ends up being important to voters. Yeah,
3: I think if Bernie Sanders went out and said, I can make an argument against Donald Trump on trade that is clean and clear and direct to the American people that I think will help me win, that's powerful. I think he can say I have a cleaner record on Social Security, though not perfect, than Joe Biden, and I'll make that fight uh, against Donald Trump that may be effective. I think it requires focus. I think when you attack someone on everything, all lots of old votes, it can feel like a kitchen sink strategy. And then it's just worth noting that, you know, Bernie's online supporters, the Bernie Sanders aligned media is going after uh, Biden in much shittier, more personal ways that are much less founded in in fact. So there is this cacophony of attacks on Joe Biden happening right now. And like, it it can feel like a wash.
2: Yeah, so that... That's the other strategy that's coming from Bernie's campaign is basically contrasting his fitness for the job with Joe Biden's. Over the weekend, Bernie's campaign manager, Fat Shakir, tweeted, quote, Bernie has three public events just today in two different states, each speaking engagement extending for close to an hour. This was in response to a report that Biden only spoke for seven minutes at a campaign rally in St. Louis. And in response to a new DNC debate rule that would have both Biden and Bernie seated, Bernie's campaign advisor, Jeff Weaver, said, quote, why does Joe Biden not want to stand toe to toe with Senator Sanders on the debate stage March 15th? Um, Bernie was later asked by Jake Tapper if he thinks Biden isn't up to the task of being president. And Bernie said he believes he is up to the task and said he believes that Biden can beat Trump. So is this a wise
4: fight for the campaign to have here? (sighs) Bernie knows the stakes. He does. And you Bernie can tell understands when he says that. what's at stake. And, and I say this not as an advocate for Joe Biden, but for someone who's now looking at a situation where Joe Biden is uh, more likely than Bernie Sanders to be the nominee. You know, we are all playing sort of with live ammo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, it's the flip side. So, you know, Bernie says, look at Joe's old position on Social Security. And Joe says, here's where I'm at now. Uh, there's a kind of phalanx online that says Joe Biden doesn't really mean it. Right. That What he really means is he wants to cut Social Security. And it, this is sort of the, is Joe Biden up for the job version of that debate, right? Bernie's going to say he is. There's going to be a bunch of people online that says he isn't. And, and to me, right now, it's like we have these two candidates and they both have strengths and they both have incredible weaknesses. They're going to go toe to toe. And if what Bernie Sanders wants to do is say, you should have buyer's remorse. Joe Biden is too weak to do this job. He is unable to give the kind of direct message, speeches. He is not doing enough public events. He's lost a step. You can't trust him to be the one to get us over the mantle. Uh, it is another version of the critique he's offering now on personality, now, now on fitness. But it still leaves open this question as, why now, right at the end, do we have a bunch of people desperately trying to find a safe place for their vote, not seeing Bernie Sanders as the safe place to put that vote?
2: The other thing is, 15 million people watched the last democratic debate where joe biden stood there for two hours and debated and a lot of people thought debated well and then on super tuesday uh so far, 4.8 million people voted for Joe Biden, which was about a million more than voted for Bernie Sanders. Yeah, the idea know. that this that, that this is somehow hidden from people. Right. We have seen a lot of Joe Biden speeches. I have seen a lot of Joe Biden speeches over this campaign. And usually they're way too fucking long. Yeah, I we've know. been the ones saying
4: know. we want to hear a tight
2: well, and I, messaged, and I, message speech. And I have to say, I looked and yes, at the at the St. Louis event, he gave a seven minute speech in Kansas City later in the day it was an 18, 19 minute speech, right? So there's just one speech that we're talking about here. And then on the debate thing, this was CNN and the DNC that decided these debate rules that now that there's down to two competitors, they would sit down. David Pluff pointed out online that in 2008, three of the four one-on-one debates between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were seated debates, it just happens. So it's like, again, all three of us have criticized Joe Biden's debate performances many, many times throughout the course of this primary but like i don't think we should be now looking for random things like a debate rule and a one seven minute speech to sort of make the argument
3: Uh, yeah listen i've watched the joe biden debate performances several times and it's made me cringe i worry more broadly about his message discipline Mm. i think the week leading up to south carolina showed a different candidate that was far more impressive but you know, I, I also think the discussion around does our candidate have the stamina to be on the campaign trail all day, every day is a fair thing to mm-hmm. discuss and something that's important. But what's happening online is very different. People are circulating selectively edited clips to argue that Joe Biden is somehow not up for the job. And when you point out to them, hey, maybe we should ask the journalists who have been on the road with him every day for a year plus what they think they say, fuck you. Uh, I know what I see with my own eyes because some random Twitter account with a you know, tweeted it out. And I think that is a very gross way to approach politics.
4: It's also, you know, Joe Biden has been a rambling gaffe machine for four decades. How old is he? 78, seven decades. And, uh, uh, He's also someone who has talked about his lifelong struggle with a stutter. There was a, I think, very nuanced and thoughtful piece about this in The Atlantic. I'm not going to diagnose Joe Biden from afar, but I do think that the point that that piece made by someone who has struggled with this uh, himself is maybe as he has gotten older, uh, it has been, and he is tired and he's on the trail, he is overcoming his stutter once again. And for people to take all of that together and try to diagnose somebody from afar, I think is... It's really irresponsible. It's gross. And also, like you
3: look, you know, sometimes you look at him and maybe he's having trouble reading off a prompter. And now I think all of us, a lot of Democrats in particular, have seen anecdotes that come out in books that say uh, Omarosa said that Donald Trump talks in circular ways and repeats the same story every 10 minutes. And you wonder, like, is this guy sundowning? We've talked about it on the show. Uh, Other people have online. That's a different thing, though. If the closest people to Joe Biden were leaking anecdotes like this to newspapers, I'd be really fucking yeah, worried. I'd yeah. be talking about it. But when Biden sucks for 20 uh, is tweeting out some selectively edited clip that I find a little uh, distasteful. But again, it's just like,
2: take it up with the Democratic voters, people like you can't argue. Joe Biden was on stage seven times for two to three hours each time in this debate. Everyone has watched him this whole primary. And then
4: they went and voted for him. They, they voted for him more than other candidates. Also, one other point about this. I don't want to live in a gerontocracy where our final three choices are going to be a 78-year-old, a 77-year-old, and a 73-year-old fat fast food enthusiast who's never <laughs> seen a treadmill. Like, I don't like that this is where we're living. But like, Bernie Sanders had a heart attack pretty recently. You know, Donald Trump has been lying about his health results. We do not know how healthy Donald Trump is or isn't. Uh, Joe Biden is now facing these. Um, these attacks from the left because he's now consolidated support and it looks like he may become the nominee. Uh, You know, I'm sympathetic to everyone who's like, why are our candidates so old? But here we are. This is it. Here we are. This is it. This is what you got.
2: And I keep saying back to the voters, like this is one of the reasons that we all sort of stayed neutral in the primary too. Like, we have to see what the voters decide. And, and and we have a primary process. We have all these states voting. Everyone got all the information they needed from a lot of debates and a lot of public appearances from all these candidates. And this is how they are deciding. And that's that's where we are, you know. Um, and so, you know, that was one fight that people were picking online. You know, Bernie was on ABC over the weekend. And he said, one of the things I was kind of surprised by was the power of the establishment to force Amy Klobuchar, who had worked so hard, and Pete Buttigieg, who really worked extremely hard as well, out of the race. First of all, a uh, lot of love for Pete and Amy there. Yeah, <laughs> for Bernie. I just, I do have problems with this. Like, That is not why Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg dropped out of the race, because anyone forced them to. In fact, Pete Buttigieg said that this morning when he was asked on Morning Joe. He said, I looked at the math and I realized there wasn't a path, and so I dropped out.
4: Bernie usually doesn't talk that way. It's usually his you know, campaign allies that talk this way. He's never usually not so willing to blame the establishment for the decisions of competitors. He has previously shown a lot of respect. He hasn't had a
3: chance to. Look, I mean, he has to be really careful with comments like that, because like you said, John, Klobuchar and and Pete can very quickly fact check you and speak for themselves for why they decided to do what they do. But it also can sound a little condescending to voters who in many states have genuinely chosen Biden over Bernie. And I think uh, you got to go bigger. Find a way to reach these people. Don't, you know, Act like they were, their strings were pulled by some DNC
4: operative in Washington. Tom Perez, you know, high above the stage, pulling the strings. I
2: just think there are lessons for progressives to learn from this primary. And I think one person who has clearly learned them and who's been talking about this is AOC. And she was at a rally yesterday in Michigan and she started talking about how. The progressive movement needs to be inclusive and you need to build movements and you need to add people and you need to persuade you know and aoc we should say who uh, you know over the weekend in an attempt to practice what she preaches there's the snl video of elizabeth warren and kate mckinnon and aoc replies by saying this is amazing or i love this or something like that obviously trying to build bridges to Warren. she probably really did like it it was fucking funny but also building bridges to warren and and, and her movement and if you go look at the replies to AOC's tweet, it will make you want to destroy your phone forever. Maybe don't look.
4: Just <laughs> yeah, don't. whatever. Was, Let's hear John's summary. Of it. it was just like yeah.
2: a lot of <laughs> online folks on the left with fairly big followings saying all kinds of horrible things to her for reaching merely reaching out and saying something nice
4: about Elizabeth Warren. It's um, I, forget obviously. There's all the ways in which it's toxic, but 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 you know. Millions of people really like Pete Buttigieg. Millions of people really like Amy Klobuchar. Millions of people really like Elizabeth Warren, really believed in her candidacy, not in a kind of, uh, in a deep and personal way. And, and, and you can mock that and you can belittle that, but it certainly doesn't help draw people to your cause um, and it doesn't make your movement seem inclusive and welcoming, that's all. Yeah, and look, this isn't to like lecture anyone. It is just
2: like pure politics here, right? Like if you just want to win... <laughs> The question you have to ask yourself yeah. is: Our movement so far, Bernie Sanders has been hitting between twenty-five and thirty-five uh, percent in every state so far, and and he's hit a, basically a ceiling at thirty-five percent. In California, was the highest uh, highest he's gotten. So the question for the movement is: How do we get a, uh, how do we get above thirty-five percent next time? How do we get to forty? How do we get to forty-five? Who do we need to talk to? Who do we need to persuade? Who do we need to bring in the movement? Just from a pure political standpoint. <laughs>
4: yeah, I don't care what people.
2: I don't like, I'm, like, I'm, not, offe-
4: I'm not offended. Really, no, no, I don't give yeah, a shit. You can send all the mean tweets call, to me you want. Call, call you know, you want to tweet snakes and rats? Have a great, great time. Yeah, have a have time. time. Have a good time. Have a good It's a real zoo on there. But I don't, it doesn't But like, I believe in progressive you. causes too. Like, I want progressive candidates who win. I just want them to actually win. And by the way, like, Bernie Sanders is a broadly popular figure in the Democratic Party. The question I would be asking is, why does Bernie Sanders consistently poll? with a 77, 80% approval rating among Democrats, but then only pull 25, 30, 35. What is the the delta there between what people are willing to vote for and what people are willing to claim they believe in? And they haven't been able to close that gap. The flip side of
3: this is that Joe Biden seemingly is not uh, getting levels of support among young people that he needs. And so mm-hmm. some people suggested over the weekend, uh, a former Warren policy director, and then Tom Perriello, former member of Congress, suggested that Joe Biden consider adopting the Warren-J. Uh, Inslee climate plan, which is a really... Uh, Major progressive approach to combating climate change. I think if Joe Biden could find an issue like that that signals how deeply he cares about climate change, it makes it a priority in the first hundred days or, or less. Uh, that might go a long way. Yeah, I agree. I
4: think it's a yeah. I think it's a really. Good. And by the way, one thing about that policy too is it's it's even Joe Biden has already set pretty big goals. What he's actually saying is I'm going to do what Jay Inslee and Elizabeth Warren say, which I'm going to set really tough benchmarks to get us there. I'm going to demonstrate how committed I am to this, and it doesn't involve him. Uh, fundamentally altering his position at this point. Yeah,
2: we should talk about how he's handling all this. Um, Biden spent the weekend campaigning in Mississippi and Missouri. Uh, tonight, he does a rally in Michigan, where he'll be joined by his newest supporters, Kamala Harris and Cory
4: Booker. What an event! The establishment forced them to Michigan tonight. Yeah, Wow, yeah. got the definitely got the uh, the 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 last the last bolt bus out of uh, <laughs> out of California. <laughs> I was
2: like, where well, I, I thought you were going to go with New Jersey. You know? No, well,
3: well I'd, I'd, yeah. <laughs> Who among us hasn't taken a bolt bus through New Jersey?
2: Biden's also been endorsed by Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, uh, and his campaign has now made the largest campaign ad by to date, $12 million in digital and television ads in the big states voting this Tuesday and next Tuesday. It does seem like he is responding to these Bernie attacks uh, or these, you know, Bernie discussing his record um, basically by just, you know, he defended his right. Re- he, he had an ad defending his record on Social Security, and then he said negative campaigning only helps Trump. He also <laughs> said he suspects he'll have to respond to, quote, a an increasingly negative campaign that the Bernie Brothers will run
4: <laughs> which is so funny but <laughs> the, they're those guys are plumbers no, The Bernie Brothers are plumbers no, no, no.
3: the thing about the Bernie brothers is you don't get that three for one suit deal but you get kind of like a boxy version <laughs> you know you see it in DC a lot. Uh, so what were you going to say, Tommy? Though? You were... I don't know. All I can think about is how worried I am that we have these like, three 70-year-old people, including the President of the United States, campaigning as a, a pandemic just flourishes across the country. It seems completely insane to me, and that's where my brain is.
2: When I watched Trump get off Air Force One today and start shaking hands in Orlando at the, at, on the rope line, I was like, what are you doing, man? First of all, he's I thought you were supposed to be a germaphobe. I know. What's he's wrong with you? That's why you, no, he, he you don't say it's his Is he brave, overcoming brave. His, his, him being a germaphobe just to own the libs? I guess. <laughs> is that what he's doing now? The media, Mike
3: Pence will pray away his illness. Um, He'll be fine.
2: But look, I I do think that that Biden's sort of response to all this by just saying he's basically just waving it off. You should go. Like, I'm going to defend my record, but I'm just going to say I don't want negative campaigning because you know we want to defeat Donald Trump. And I I don't think I think he could go. He could start talking about Bernie's record, but I sort of think he at this point, if I were him, I wouldn't do that.
4: It does He doesn't need to make bernie lose he just has to s- prevent himself from losing he just has to and he get needs to ridden. show
2: some some grace to bernie supporters yes. and, and talk about bring them in and, and some of the policy stuff we talked about
3: yeah. go, go big bring them in uh debate format notwithstanding i would be deeply frustrated if i were in the bernie sanders camp that this next debate isn't until after the contest <laughs> this week that's shitty timing for them yeah. I, I feel for them that stinks that said uh you know it's it's not over they were also a little there was some annoyance from them that uh, the debate has gone from being
2: a traditional debate
3: format to a town hall format where they're taking
2: questions there's from some the audience.
3: questions from the audience instead of fully moderated
2: questions yeah. I don't I don't know why that would be worse or better I was kind of confused by
3: why you would yeah. I, I just think it's hard in that context to get uh, a, a question from a, a veteran who you know needs his you know, benefits and is frustrated with the VA and turned that into a, an attack on the person next year. Yeah. Is, it's it feels awful. Awesome. I'm
2: trying to think of how the second debate went between Trump and Hillary when it was a town hall. I can't remember. What, what, remember their second one was a town hall. Yeah, that's the one with oh, the, that the lurking. That was the that. lurking
4: Trump. They is, they
2: found a way to do it. Yeah, well, traditionally, <laughs> right,
4: traditionally, with when you're in front of actual people, it's harder to uh, <laughs> just to take out an Uzi, a rhetorical Uzi, and obliterate. Yeah. Thank you for your wonderful question about healthcare, Angela. This fucking asshole. <laughs> this guy. <laughs>
2: Guy over here I, I do wonder how this debate's gonna go especially like i mean if it's very close tomorrow and bernie ends up doing like the best case scenario for bernie then you can see it being a traditional kind of debate down to two uh candidates where they really go after each other and it's quite contentious
4: right and so if yeah. biden
2: does quite well tomorrow that like you know according to some of the polls he is then i wonder what that last debate looks like if he's built up this this big delegate lead
4: yeah it's, I'm um, sure
2: it'll be wonderful on Twitter to follow along.
4: Right. I mean, I think you know Bernie. It's it's it, you know Bernie. I think is torn by two uh, two ideas. One that he genuinely and sincerely believes he would be a better president. Yeah. And deserves the opportunity to prove that and has been hamstrung by the media and the process. That's I think what they believe. And, and I on. think he believes he's more electable too. And believes he's more electable. But at the same time, recognizing that that he understands that we're playing for. <laughs> playing for everything yep. and isn't going to do anything at this point to make Joe Biden unelectable. He won't. Yeah. He just doesn't have it in
2: him. And look, and for all the complaining about, you know, some folks on the online left, you're right. Bernie understands that. AOC understands that. A lot of the leaders of the progressive movement who are elected leaders totally understand that. And that's, you know, I think it's a good sign.
4: 155 years of decency on that stage. <laughs> Okay. Nice on
2: that note, quick math. Uh, <laughs> when we come back, we will have my interview with North Carolina Senate candidate, Democrat Cal Cunningham. Yes, we Cal. Yes, we Cal. Watching yeah. our Cals. Let's do it.
3: Yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone. You got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's hel slash PSA.
6: Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle?
2: I am now joined here at Cricket Headquarters by the Democratic candidate for Senate in North Carolina, Cal Cunningham. Uh, Cal, welcome.
5: John, glad to be on. Appreciate Uh, it.
2: Good to have you. Um, So for all of our listeners who might not know you, um, can you talk a little bit about your background and also sort of what got you into politics in the first
5: place? Sure. Look, I grew up in the little town of Lexington, North Carolina. The pork barbecue capital of the world. Oh, nice. um, educated at UNC, undergrad in law, slipped a master's degree in from London School of Economics in between, uh-huh. and went back to my home community after law school and was elected to the state senate when I was 27, uh, representing a really swing part of North Carolina. Al Gore got about 40% of the vote in my precincts the same night I got about 54% of the vote. So 27 years old. 27 huh? years old, yeah.
6: Wow.
5: Uh, felt I mean, look, I grew up in church and scouting and and youth group, uh, believing in public service, believing in serving people, and I stumbled into an internship with Carl Levin on Capitol Hill in 1993, and I was struck by the opportunity to really serve people that way.
2: And then uh, you were a state legislator for a little while, and then you left. And I
5: did. Look, my district got chopped up in redistricting. It was a court-imposed, very partisan redistricting. Uh, But September 11th had happened while I was in the Senate, and I joined the Army Reserve. I've done tours in Iraq, tour in Afghanistan, uh, spent time at Fort Bragg, uh, North Carolina, training special operations troops, and uh, now at the rank of lieutenant colonel in the reserves.
2: And what made you decide to jump back in?
5: Jump back into politics? Yeah. Well, look, I'm a parent. Okay. I got two teenage kids, uh-huh. and really, they, uh, you know, would come home after school and say, "Dad, what? <laughs> the world is on fire. What are you going to do about it?" Yeah. Uh, my daughter, who is very passionate about animal welfare, like one morning, almost a year, year and a couple of months ago, we had sort of Morning Joe playing in the morning. We we're supposed to get out the door to school, uh-huh. running late. I got drop off at school, and my very reserved but very passionate young daughter just got fired up and started yelling at the TV. And she looked me in the eye and she said, Dad, what are you going to do to fix it? And so... She was radicalized
2: by something on Morning Joe? (laughs) uh, Yes. Well, the the
5: president had been up all night tweeting about, like, gutting the Endangered Species Act Uh, or something, and, you know, she looks at me. But, you know, this is my son and daughter walked out of school uh, after Parkland. They put on black and walked out of school after Parkland. And they're looking to me and Elizabeth, my, my wife, as their parents and saying... You know, what are we doing about this? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's I think the moral compass of our children right now is, is, is very true. And uh, so this is part of how I respond to them to yeah. leave the world in a better place for them. They're about to inherit the keys to this country. And my sweet daughter, Caroline, turned 18 in January. And she and I walked into an early vote site a couple of weeks ago. And my answer to Caroline is I'm at the top of your ballot. Yeah, this is how we solve it. That's
2: great. Um, So you just won a pretty sizable uh, victory over a primary challenger, Erica Smith. Um, Though You know, she did get about a a third of the vote. And I saw some exit polls out of North Carolina that said majority of Democratic voters are for Medicare for all, uh, for free public college. Um, What did you learn from your primary and how do you keep the folks who didn't vote for you energized and excited Uh, for November?
5: Well, sure. Look, I mean, first of all, uh, other really good people in the primary. It's a five-way race, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they're they're very good-hearted people. Uh, I think that the primary made me work, and it made us a sharper team. It made me uh, put me in better touch with the electorate in North Carolina, made us run a campaign, uh, which was good. Uh, You may know, I mean, Mitch McConnell set up a super PAC and dropped into the middle of our primary. I heard. Really to... Uh, create a lot of mischief. We can talk a little bit about that. But I would say just to get to your question, I had to work and raised my profile with the electorate. We got 10.5 million people in North Carolina, uh, had very nice turnout for a Democratic Party primary, about 1.3 million people, uh, considerably higher than the Republican primary. And it uh, gave me a chance to engage. And so we're all ready. Look, so the polls closed Tuesday night. I got up Wednesday morning and I kicked off a two-day tour across North Carolina explicitly talking about the fact that folks may have picked a different ballot. They may have voted Republican in that primary. They may have picked another candidate in my primary. Or, as with the vast majority of people, they just sat it out. They didn't vote at all. And so I've got to get to them. I've got to go to them. And I didn't start my 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 tour in blue North Carolina. I went straight into the heart of red North Carolina yeah. and kicked off a like a seven or eight county tour.
2: Let's uh, let's talk about Tom Tillis. Um, When you talk to folks in North Carolina, what do you find to be the most persuasive arguments about why uh, he shouldn't be reelected?
5: It it really kind of boils down to this: he isn't putting North Carolinians first. He's decided something's more important. Uh, We see this in vote after vote. He's got a partisan interest that he's vindicating. He's got political self survival interest that he's trying to vindicate, and he is. Uh, He is in lockstep with some special interests on Capitol Hill. And so time and time again, North Carolinians get to see him doing things for others and not doing things for us. And, you know, almost no better example than a year ago, he wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post and he said, it's a simple matter of principle. No president should use the emergency powers to fund the border wall. And I remember reading that saying, well, you got one right, Tom. Uh, But then 10 days later, he walks onto the floor of the U.S. Senate. And he says, I've had further conversations with my Washington friends and flips in what the Charlotte observers had called an Olympic gold medal worthy flip flop to give the president exactly that authority. So then the president starts rounding up money to to pay for the border wall. Where does he get it? He gets it from Fort Bragg, North Carolina. He gets it from an ambulatory medical facility at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, a barracks for Marines. He gets it from infrastructure at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina. How much clearer example could you get of a senator who puts his own interests here hugging the president ahead of North Carolina?
2: It does seem like a um, it's a bit of a sleeper issue, the president sort of funding his, his wall with uh, just sort of taking money from everywhere else I, I you know i did some focus groups for another podcast i i do and uh i had a couple people in milwaukee who were trump obama trump voters and they were like i just don't like this idea that he's trying to fund this wall by maybe taking money from my retirement or other you know factories in wisconsin and stuff like that so it is interesting that this isn't this is an issue that resonates that you don't hear people in the media talking about as well, much
5: well let me give it even more uh, granular detail because tillis has managed to do something that is uh Remarkable even in this day and age. So obviously Democrats and unaffiliated voters have a lot of skepticism about him. He's cut education. He's passed uh, when he was Speaker of the House, did bad things on health care, has gone to Capitol Hill and voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act, all the sort of bad acts that you would expect. But he's also managed to alienate Trump's people in yeah. North Carolina. So so I can go to the state fair, as I did, and you know I'm at the Democratic Party booth and it's all hugs and smiles and high fives and selfies, but I see the Trump booth across the way now, this is the kind of candidate I am, this kind of Democrat I am, I went over and introduced myself to the Trump to the Trump table. Uh-huh. And I said, so what do y'all think of our junior senator, Tom Tillis? And these are their words, yeah. not mine. They say he's immoral and unethical. They say he flip-flops, he doesn't know who he is, and we don't trust him. And so true to form, John, on election day, Tuesday, Tom Tillis got 140,000 fewer votes in his primary than Donald Trump got right up the ballot from him. Wow. 140,000 Republicans knew Tom Tillis and decided to cast their votes for really un. Uh, uh, nondescript other Republicans <laughs> in that primary. <laughs> That's pretty I mean, rough for Tillis. And so when tr- when Trump comes to North Carolina, he, he held a rally in, in Fayetteville. He held a rally in Greenville. He held a rally in Charlotte. It gets Tom Tillis up on stage with him. Trump's people boo Tom Tillis.
2: That's interesting because because he's not Trumpy enough for
5: them. He's he's they don't trust him. (laughs) They don't trust him. That's that's what it is. He flip flops. That's always.
2: Yeah. So let's talk about some of those Trump voters, because, you know, if you're going to win in November, obviously you're going to need some of those Trump voters. Um, That's why I I presume you started in a lot of those red counties. Um, How do you run a campaign where you appeal to those? Trump voters and also appeal to maybe some of those voters in the primary who, you know, voted for, you know, candidates that were more progressive or whatever else it may be. How do you sort of, it's a very diverse state ideologically as well. Sure. How do you sort of keep that coalition no,
5: together? No, no, we're a swing state. Uh, we're, we're very much a purple state. And, and by the way, uh, when we win this, when we're taking the U.S. Senate, nice. I mean this. I, yeah, I, I was going to say yours look, is the seat, John, man. John, I was going to say you got me. You got you got North Carolina ranked as a second tier. No way, baby. Okay, at, all at, right. At, oh, this at, is good. At, at, I'm I'm going to drop the gauntlet right here. In fact, I'll bet you a barbecue sandwich from Lexington Barbecue <laughs> that at 10 p.m. my time on November the third, which will be seven o'clock here, mm-hmm. you're going to turn on MSNBC, and you're going to see the Associated Press call this race in my favor. And when they do, the dominoes will fall all across the country. And we're going to take the U.S. Senate.
2: I love that. Like we don't do predictions here anymore after 2016, but that doesn't mean that you can't. So Look, we'll we we'll have we have this I, that, now on you, tape, which
5: you, is great. You, you do. This this, <laughs> this this is the race that will decide it. Let me tell you how we get those voters. We start by listening, and there are a lot of people, even Republicans, that don't feel like their voices are being heard on Capitol Hill. They see in a Tom Tillis somebody who is putting his own interests and special interests ahead of North Carolina's interest time and time again. And so I can tell a North Carolina story. It's a state that raised me. It's a state where I went to school. It's a state where I built an environmental company headquartered in Raleigh. I've served with uh, army troops from North Carolina. I can tell a North Carolina story and we do, but also look in a democracy, folks are going to disagree on the issues and we can do it without being disagreeable, but it starts by listening. My aunt, Sis, was an elementary school teacher. She raised me. She taught me to to read at a very early age. She said, a good listener is a good learner. And in all my experiences in in government and in in business and, and elsewhere, I've also come to believe that a good listener is a good leader. And so it starts with engaging. And that's why I kicked off the Carolina Conversations Tour Wednesday morning, traveling across red North Carolina, just having conversations with folks. We need to make sure all 10.5 million North Carolina voices are being heard on Capitol Hill, even though there are going to be disagreements on the issues.
2: How much is uh, the president part of your race? How much do you talk about Trump?
5: I talk about Tillis. Yeah. Uh, I'm focused on North Carolina. Uh, look, I'm going to be ready to work with whoever the next president is. Obviously, I've got a, a strong set of personal beliefs about who that uh, that, that we need to, to change up what's in the White House today. Uh, but i got to be prepared to work with whoever's there. And so I'm very focused on North Carolina.
2: Um, you live in a state where Republicans have, you know, done everything they can to sort of uh, wage war on democracy, whether it's gerrymandering, whether it's some of the tricks they pull on Governor Cooper in the legislature. Um, you know, if you get to the Senate, you'll obviously find that Mitch McConnell uh, uses the same playbook. What are some sort of pro-democracy reforms you're interested in uh, if you get to the Senate?
5: Well, look, uh, before I even get there, Tom Tillis is the guy who passed the law when he was Speaker of the State House that was struck down by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals for targeting African-Americans with surgical precision. Yeah, that's right. He's a bad actor on this front. And Mitch McConnell himself has already, through his super PAC, has already waded into our primary, spent millions of dollars trying to beat me in the primary. It's like a Hail Mary pass. He knows that in the head-to-heads between me and Tillis, which incidentally two polls since it just in the last week,
2: yeah. plus five. Me. Yeah, Southern
5: Maris yeah. and, and public policy polling just came out as well, plus five. Good government. This is at the heart of the conversation I'm having with North Carolinians. It's about corruption. It's about reforming our democracy and healing our democracy. First piece of legislation I'm gonna file is an effort. Const- to amend the Constitution and overturn Citizens United. Mm-hmm. This unregulated dark money in our politics is exactly how independent group can come into North Carolina, posing as a democratic pack, the yeah. faith and power pack, to try to interfere in our own primary. So we need to overturn Citizens United. We need to reenact Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. We ought to add partisanship is one of the things that's getting reviewed by the Justice Department. I want to see us end uh, the revolving door on Capitol Hill and in and out of the administration. I've taken a pledge in this campaign not to take corporate PAC money. I think that's a important step in the right direction for how we how we re-establish uh, the link between voters and and the folks that we're that are being sent up there uh, uh, to represent us. And so, uh, just as I did in the state legislature, helping create a voter-owned elections program, just as I did in Iraq when I prosecuted corrupt government contractors and uh, put a military contractor in a or a military contractor in a military court and prosecute them, Uh, we've got corruption problems on Capitol Hill, political and financial corruption problems. And I'm going to Washington to work on them.
2: Uh, It said in the exit polls that the most important issue to voters was health care. Is that what you're hearing out there?
5: I do. Second only to corruption. Second to corruption. But I mean, there are North Carolina local factors that you've identified in the state legislature. I mean, we just had a special election in the ninth congressional district because of uh, sort of a vote-buying scheme. Mm. Uh, the largest donor to the state Republican Party was just convicted in federal court for trying to bribe the Republican insurance commissioner. So corruption is very top of mind in North Carolina. Second to that is health care. That's the most substantive issue. And I, so frankly, I talk about corruption as standing in the way of progress on health care, and that's uh, part of the dialogue we're having.
2: What do you think should be done on health care when, uh, when you get to the Senate?
5: We need to add a public option to the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. We need to uh, give Medicare the right to negotiate for lower prescription drug costs and cap out of pocket costs particularly for some of the uh some therapies like uh, insulin and and we've got asthma inhalers just the the costs of, of prescriptions are are really causing a, a big burden there's a, a subsidy cliff uh, in the exchange for use of subsidies to help bring those costs down yeah. but I'll tell you one of the things North Carolina hasn't done uh, one of the tools in the Affordable Act toolbox is the Medicaid expansion
1: yeah, I was gonna say. North
5: Carolina hadn't done it I have a I have a million seventy thousand uninsured North Carolinians, one of the highest uninsured populations, and so in North Carolina we're paying between eight and twelve percent higher premium costs because we have such a high uninsured population. I've got uh, rural hospitals teetering on the verge of bankruptcy because they're treating people in the emergency room uh, and not getting uh, reimbursed for it. And so uh, among the many issues, I mean I've got eighty five thousand opioid dependent North Carolinians that don't have care today because we haven't expanded Medicaid. Guess why we haven't expanded Medicaid. Yeah. Tom Tillis yeah, was speaker as, yeah. and he passed a law. He's proud of having passed a law that stands in the way of governor Roy Cooper. Well, that seems like a
2: good issue for the gen- for the uh, general election. Now. Oh, we're already talking about it. This
5: same guy that on Capitol Hill has voted repeatedly to, to repeal the affordable care act. I mean, that puts 1.7 million North Carolinians at risk because of preexisting conditions.
2: Um, I read that you uh, filled out your absentee ballot for Pete Buttigieg, your fellow veteran, when he was in the race. Um, Who would you rather see at the top of the ticket in November, Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders?
5: I can work with anybody. You can work with that? That's the right answer. (laughs) Well, it's it's, it's true. Look, uh, uh, I'm I'm focused on building a campaign that's going to connect with North Carolinians. And I'm I'm prepared for a day where I am able to work with whoever's in the White House, Mm -hmm. either party, and and either one of the Democrats uh, that, that are still in this race. So... Uh, I want to see a play out. I'm going to support the ticket this fall, and uh, uh, let's see where the rest of the country goes with this.
2: Um, I asked uh, folks on Twitter for questions for you, and uh, I got this one a couple times. What is your go-to order at Cookout? Oh my God, are you kidding? Cheeseburger, dude. <laughs> cheeseburger, <laughs>
5: bacon cheeseburger. Okay. Uh, but, you know, look, we got
2: some. We got Elijah some... said, was, Elijah says the tray. Right, that's what you're. Yeah, well, look, hey, we have another North Carolina uh, fan right here.
5: <laughs> so, so look, we got some good eating establishments in North Carolina. You certainly I mean, do. Got, got got a little Bojangles if you ever get uh, to the Bojangles. neighborhood. Love oh. Bojangles.
2: I've been to a Bojangles. Oh
5: come on, man. <laughs> I mean, come on. But but I'll tell you what, I'm an ambassador for what's North, that? North Carolina barbecue. Yeah, I Lexington. Mean. That's my hometown, man. We 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 are the pork barbecue capital of the world. And in politics, and I mean politics, is serious business in North Carolina. Yeah. But east versus west barbecue that's that's, people, people, that's people where it gets speak. intense right It gets really intense yeah. all. i mean it's not quite as bad as carolina versus duke but you
2: know <laughs> <laughs> i won't even get into that yeah yet. yeah um cal cunningham thank you for joining us and uh best of luck in the race this fall
5: john uh, happy to be on here upgrade my race this is the, this is where we're going to decide it. And, and tell your listeners get tuned into this race at cal this is where uh, when we win this, we win the Senate.
2: Well, it's one of the six states we're going to have in our Adopt a State program. And so we, uh, we got to get a bunch of people to adopt uh, North Carolina. And you can be the ambassador for North Carolina, trying to get our listeners to adopt that as one of their six states.
5: I'm going to be the senator for North Carolina.
2: Perfect. Thanks, Great. John. All right. Take care. Thanks to Cal Cunningham for joining us. And now an interview that Lovett had with the hosts of our new sports podcast, Hall of Shame, Rachel Bonetta and Retchna Frukbaum.
4: Thank you for being here. We were so excited about launching the show. I've been listening to the episodes. I love them. It's great because this is a sports show for everyone, not just sports fans. For example, Tommy and I both listened. There was an episode about figure skating that one of us loved. There was an episode about a football that another one of us loved. And uh, you'll have to decide who loved which. So, Rechna, Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about this show and why people are going to love it?
7: Yeah, for yeah. sure. So basically, Rachel and I are huge sports fans, and there's so many delicious scandals that happen in the sports world, and we're going back in time and like rehashing all of them.
0: Yeah, and we feel like sometimes. They're not available to everyone because it feels like I got to know about sports. But the truth is, they're just like awesome, yeah. interesting, funny stories that are worth telling.
7: And I wouldn't want any like non-sports fans to feel alienated or no. feel dumb going into them because it's not like that. We're not yeah. getting into the nitty gritty of like plays or anything like that. It's more so like I show up. And Russia and I are going out for a drink and I'm like, holy shit, have you ever heard this story? It's it's yeah. like an, a, there's an excitement to show up and tell her yeah. these like bonkers Stories.
4: So, what are some of the stories people can look forward to?
0: All right. Well, there's one that I loved about Rosie Ruiz, who basically mm. is a cheater. Yeah, uh, so, a marathon cheater. Dirty, I don't want to like cheater. no
7: spoilers. But... She 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 rode a subway to and the so, finish line and then got so first like also place. our hero. I don't know. Yeah,
4: I respect it. So yeah, the we. confidence that mm-hmm. that requires. It's,
0: yeah. And then, yeah, I'm. You know what? I was just about to spoil the fun. Forget it. No, we'll
7: just keep, it. keep them, keep them wanting more. Yeah. <laughs> there's also the story of um, 10 cent beer night, where Cleveland Indians offered 10 cent beer. So I, uh, you can figure it out.
0: Yeah, that, <laughs> Shick real. <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of people from Cleveland, given given essentially free beer. Yeah. While watching their team play.
7: Yeah.
4: Obviously, like sports right now, there's a lot of political aspects to it. Whether it's you know head injuries in the NFL, For sure. or um, any of the other sundry sports political intersections that sm- people that pay attention to that part of the uh, sure. feed could talk about. Like how political is the show?
0: We it really like it's like organic because so often these stories. Go in that direction. It's just mm-hmm. like there's an inherent.
7: Well, there's just so many things going on in the sports world. I mean, and like it's so Colin Kaepernick, yeah. LeBron James in China. There's a million things. We're not. We're never going to ignore those things. No, and
0: even in the figure skating story, which story, which like ostensibly is not about politics, but it, like it veers into it. So it's like not, it, we there's... talk about
7: Russia. Yeah. Like it's it's all over the map. But listen,
0: Russia's we talk about Russia a lot because they're just like all
7: over. So they're just somehow like embroiled in every <laughs> single sports scandal that we found. So you know, it they, comes up. <laughs> yeah, they
4: got a um, a pension for fixing things. They do. They like fixing. to get in there. Yes. There was that. I, I you guys haven't recorded yet, but there's that. Um, they they were they were passing the uh, blood test through the walls. Yeah. Oh, one, during one uh, of the Olympics, I yes. just respect the hustle. Yeah. For yeah sure. There's something
0: about it where it's too. It's like it's craft with like the most low stakes shit, and you're like, God, you could just like love. The hustle of it. <laughs> like,
7: Absolutely. like
4: gold medals are not that like who important it yeah.
7: on this podcast
4: to a government,
7: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. and yet.
4: <laughs> um, let, I also want people to know a little bit about you, uh, Rachel. Like you come from uh, the sports and comedy world, Retina. Yeah. You're a just like crush it, cr- uh, crush. You're a crusher, it, crushing a comedy writer, a com um, a comedy well, writer who crushes.
0: Yeah. Hey, man. Thank you. It was easy. It's Yeah. <laughs> it's <aside>. I, <laughs> I nailed it. Yeah. I I didn't start comedy writing till I was a little older. till after I had my kid. Which is awesome. Wow. What'd you do before? I I was like an assistant in film development and then I was stayed home with my kid for a little. And then I was like, I really don't want to be stayed home. So I started writing. <laughs> and and then you went in. on
7: Parks and Rec. Wasn't that like your first yeah, writing job? Lucky bitch. That's pretty incredible. I know.
4: Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Rachel?
7: Um... <sighs> I've been covering sports for, like, the last eight years, I think, Uh, kind of going around to all these different sports, football, soccer, basketball, a little bit of everything. And I'm from Toronto. I'm Canadian. Yeah. That's really all you need to know. And I'm from
0: Cleveland, so sports is sort of baked in. Yeah. No matter what. Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah. You... um. You were at the Ten beer night. Uh, you knew she <laughs> died. Very- I'm a
0: Highlander, so
7: it was in 1970s. <laughs> she was either there or conceived there. <laughs> she just grabbed. Yeah,
4: she's a Highlander. She grabbed yeah. a Ten beer and she just fell down uh, <laughs> uh, onto the third baseline, yeah. screaming, "There could be only one."
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that's why Rachel picked me. So that's yeah to be your co-host. So <laughs> it worked. Beautifully. It all worked out. Mm-hmm. I I love sports because I think for my dad, as an immigrant. Uh, connecting to sports was a way to like connect to this country oh that's awesome so like in our family is like so huge I feel like it's like common for immigrants because it's like a international language I will say
7: I will add one more thing I think it's rad that two women are doing a podcast about sports because I really don't think I work in sports and have worked in sports for a really long time Mm -hmm. and it's not very often that you see women you know sharing their opinions and insight and being smart about and funny about sports so I would just you know it's force exciting. that onto your listeners that it's a yeah. cool thing. <laughs> yeah.
0: We just got really serious, both of us. We just were like, I, want to, I had something deep I wanted to share.
4: Yeah. I just wanted people to hear from you because I think once they get to know you, they're going to understand why this is going to be everyone's favorite new podcast. I know that when I listened... Uh, to the most recent episode, I didn't get out of my car until it was over, which I think that's is a really test. Nice that's so
7: nice. Yeah. yeah, and I also think they're super digestible. Like they're twenty twenty five minutes long. Yeah, and hopefully people will just like want to keep on going to the next one. Yeah, so yeah.
0: that's the dream. Thanks yeah. for having Thanks us on here. Thanks like, yeah. for
4: us. I just want people, are you our pause? This, this isn't for you. <laughs> this isn't for you. This is for the audience to understand how good this show is going to be. Yeah, and I hope everybody goes to subscribe to Hall of Shame right now. Woo. All right. I want this thing to rocket up the charts. Okay. Yes. Obviously, I am still a little sore from what happened with Love It or Leave It in S-Town mm. uh, because Love It or Leave It was never able to uh, move above S-Town. But mm. I want to get ho- – Hall of Shame's yeah. got to get to number one. Let's All do right? it. This Let's is a sports it. it's gonna podcast. It's going to be really fun. Yeah. It's It'll so fun. But there are two episodes you can check out right now that are up. And uh, you're. it's not – don't do it as a favor to me. Do it as a favor to yourselves. Uh, this is yeah. not for us. This also, is for I will you. say
7: you'll be an awesome party guest or dinner date because you're going to have crazy stories in the vault that you can just whip out yeah. at any time.
4: Yeah, when you're sitting across uh, <laughs> from first your, like, date. <laughs> yeah, you're Raya. G- genuine monster <laughs> <laughs> in a fedora. Perfect. <laughs> Entertain yourself you by recounting it. 10 cent you just beer made knife? me
0: feel great as I entered single life for the first time in 20 years. There so you go. Fun.
4: Wow. And also, just hey. at the very end of this interview, uh, one sentence that opens up a whole world hey, of man. information.
0: <laughs> that's so true. I don't know why I threw that in there like a weirdo. Millions of
4: people are now going to know this. <laughs> Subscribe to Hall of Shame. Rechna needs this. I
0: mean, <laughs> do it. Don't do it for... <laughs> love it. Don't do it for Rachel. Don't do it for yourself. Do it for me. Yeah. Thank you.
7: Hall of it. Shame.
0: Hall of Shame. Down now.
2: Thanks to Cal Cunningham and Rachel Bonetta and Retchna Fruckbomb for joining us today. Uh, that's all we have. Everyone, uh, you know, wash your hands.
4: Don't touch your face. Don't touch your face. Don't touch your face. Don't touch your 401k. Don't check your 401k. That's not my K. joke. Someone That's your 401k. someone else's
2: joke from Twitter. <laughs> you know what? We'll all laugh anyway. Bye. Bye. Pod Save America is a product of Crooked Media. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papa Dimitriou, Caroline Reston, and Elisa Gutierrez for production support, and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Conian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as videos every week.
1: I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible.